I can sense that we are anxious for answers. We're anxious to get to the New Testament. We're anxious to get to the cross. We're anxious to get to Jesus. We're on our way. We're getting there. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 105. I'm uh, going to have some Q&A after the session, so I'm going to try not to be too long tonight. And um, that's a promise to try, not a promise to succeed. Um, but I, I will really try because I do want to have some dialogue with you. I'm anxious to hear what, you, what you're thinking. Um, psalm 105 is a great psalm. And it's a complement to 104, and it's long, but it was long on purpose. And as we read this psalm, put yourself in the position of an Israelite 500 years before Jesus. Okay, the exile has just happened, and the history of Israel is already at this point, if you count it from Abraham, it's 1,500 years old, if you count it from Moses, it's 1,500 years old, or 1,000 years old. If you count it from David, it's 500 years old. It's been a long time. And it's going to be a long time yet. And that's part of the point. So let's read this Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength and seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. While they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land, and broke all supply of bread, and sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his neck were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and he made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. 
He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed signs among them, the miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, and devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and gave fire to light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. The doctrine of providence is a huge comfort to the believer. It's truth that can be given to the flock of God as an antidote to despair. It motivates us to worship God in good times and bad. And it's the basis of great scriptural promises like this one from the Apostle Paul. That all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to him. The scripture tells us that God did not just bring the world into being and then step back to let it develop on its own without his guidance or protection. Instead, it says that creation continues to be completely dependent on the ongoing power of God that holds everything together. As Paul said about Christ, in him all things hold together. And we saw this morning that this Christian doctrine of providence emerges out of passages of Scripture like Psalm 104, where we see this conception of nature as the work of our loving Heavenly Father. And we noted three significant facts about it, that providence is a continuation of creation, it's a preservation of creation, and it's a revelation of God in creation. And we saw as well that the key verse was, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works, as the psalmist just cries out in, 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 in absolute wonder and awe at what God has made. Psalm 105 forms a pair with Psalm 104. But here, instead of focusing on nature, our attention is directed to the history of God's actions in the history of Israel. And the key verse is verse 5. Remember the wonderful works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. This psalm invites us to consider the actions of God in history 
whereby he has acted to judge and save his people. The psalm begins with a call to give thanks to the Lord and praise him in such a way as to make his deeds known among the nations. Remember, this psalm was written by an Israelite calling on his fellow Israelites to remember the works of the Lord in Israel's history. And the rest of the psalm, after the opening call to worship, recounts the history of Israel from its beginning in Abraham to the entrance into the promised land with an emphasis on the events surrounding the Exodus. Now the context of this psalm is crucial for its meaning. The, um, by the way, just a short little interlude about the psalms. The Psalter, the, 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 the 150 psalms, has an organized structure. It, uh, the Psalter is five books which parallel the five books of the Torah, and the structure of the Psalter is meant to be the context in which we understand the various psalms and what they mean. This psalm is in book four, and the hinge of the Psalter comes at the end of book three with Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 is a lament for, about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. It is a lament about the fact that God allowed the people of Israel to be carried off into captivity in Babylon so that the holy city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, there was an end to sacrificial worship, and the Davidic monarchy comes to an end. And Psalm 89 comes right up to the brink of despair and just stops on the edge. And so books four and five of the Psalter are a response to the exile. And I believe that the Psalter was put into its final form, in the form we have it now, after the exile, shortly after the exile, between the exile and the return. And this book three, sorry, book four and book five are crucial for understanding what it means to have faith in an exilic situation. Now, we aren't in exile, although in a way, we are. You know, uh, this morning, for all my talk about this world being our home, created for us by our Heavenly Father, the old gospel song that says, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, is still true, because we are passing through on a journey, and we are heading to a place that, in, that is better than this, although it includes, as the old professor explains at the end of the last battle in C.S. Lewis's uh, book, that it includes everything that's good in this world is somehow taken up and included in the world to come so that nothing is lost, but everything is made better, and it goes on forever. So the people of Israel are in the exilic situation, and we are also looking for hope. We are also waiting for a Messiah. Now, we are waiting for the second coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. But they were waiting, and we are waiting. And neither of us are in our final state. And so the Psalms could not be more relevant to us. They could not be more relevant to the people of God today. And so Psalm 90 is the first psalm. It's the only one from Moses, and it's the, it opens book four. So obviously the, the editor has reached way back in, in Israel's history and brought out Psalm 90 
as a fitting introduction to book four of the Psalter, which goes from Psalm 90 to 106. Now, Psalm 106, at the other end of book four, is a continuation of the theme of 105, about the history of Israel and God's faithfulness. And it begins by saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now, there's a difference between the Lord being good and the Lord doing good things for you. Big difference. Because the Lord, the, the, the issue is, in what does our security rest? Where, where, what, is, what are we depending on in the final analysis? Are we depending on the fact that God is promising to do good things for us and by his will he has decided to do them? That wasn't good enough for the Israelites in exile. They're what, they've watched their temple burn. They've watched the pagan empire triumph over the people of Israel. They have seen that sometimes bad things happen to good people. Just by the way, remember that when Jerusalem fell, there were believing, um, faithful, obedient, covenant-keeping Israelites in that city. Sure, the nation as a whole was apostate. Sure, the leaders were a royal mess. The, the prof, they had false prophets and court prophets and they had kings and leaders who, and nobles who had forsaken the Lord. They had priests who were, who were destroying temple worship. They had child sacrifice going on, as Jeremiah tells us, in Jerusalem. But there were also faithful Israelites. And they were killed too. They, were, they, were, they suffered in the destruction of, of, the, of the situation. And now people who survived are looking back on that and they know that sometimes in the providence of God, really bad things might happen to you and do happen to you. And so the doubt creeps into your mind. So God was faithful to Abraham Isaac and Jacob, and to others in the history, but maybe that's over now. Maybe there's a new, maybe it's a new day. Maybe Israel, Israel has just gone too far. We provoked the, the Lord too much, just one time too many, and now it, he's going to declare the covenant null and void, and he's going to start over again with some other people. You might remember in Exodus that it says that God was thinking of doing that, and Moses talked him out of it. So it's not a crazy thought. I mean, when you're sitting in that situation, and many people today are sitting in a situation where it appears that they've been abandoned by the Lord. Death has come into their family and robbed them of a significant relationship, or, or an accident has taken away their livelihood, or their health is failing, or any one of a dozen different things that can happen to a person has happened, and they're wondering, God was faithful, but maybe he's changed his mind. He's not going to be keeping me in his grace any longer. Maybe, I, maybe this is the end. So it's really important to know, not just that God did good things in the past, but that those good things were done by him because he is good. And folks, that's why classical theism is important. That's why the doctrine of God is important, because it's important to believe that God does not change that God is good in his very eternal nature. 
He doesn't just do good things sometimes. Because we're going to live in a life where, where there's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be positives and negatives and there's going to be trials and tribulations as well as joys and, and wonderful things. And as we pass through this journey, we have to be able to put our, our hope in a rock-solid God who does not ever change. And the psalmist is teaching us this. The psalmist is teaching his people Israel this, but he's also teaching us this. And so we need to review the history that the psalmist recounts in this psalm. We look at the covenant with Abraham. So the the nation Israel originated in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And God called Abraham to leave his country and to go out to a land that he would show him. And he promised Abraham that he would bless him and that he would bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. He said he would give, them, give Abraham a land and make his people, his seed, his descendants numerous so that they would be as numerous descendants would, would take possession of a land. And the really important thing, he told Abraham that he would bless all the nations of the world. By the way, that's us. Through the seed of Abraham. That's the covenant that God made. And you'll notice that when they come later to the Sinai covenant, and you read the book of Exodus to Deuteronomy, it's all conditional. If you obey, you'll live long in the land. If you do this, then I will do that. The Abrahamic covenant is not conditional. God doesn't say, if Abraham, if you and your descendants behave well enough, I will bless the whole world through you. No, he just says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And that's where the nation of Israel started. And it's really important for the psalmist to take the people that he's trying to talk to at this point back to that moment and remind them that this whole adventure that we call Israel got started in an unconditional covenant that God made with with Moses, with Abraham. And the psalmist emphasizes that the land of Canaan was given as Israel's inheritance. And the theme of the psalm is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. So if you come to Deuteronomy, the long life and continuation in the land is is conditional on keeping the covenant. And yet the land itself functioned in the Abrahamic covenant as a staging ground for the people of Israel. And the land was given so that the promise could be kept And yet it appears that the promise could be kept even with Israel exiled from the land. And that's what's really hard for them to understand. But that's what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, listen, remember how we descended into Egypt. He goes on to talk about the family of Jacob, which numbered only about 70. And they went down into Egypt and they were saved from famine. Now, In his providence, God sent Joseph ahead of them. Now, that's a problematic statement. But we're going to see several problematic statements here. But God did send Joseph to Egypt. But you say, no, he was kidnapped by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He uh, became a slave, and and then he was tossed in prison. All kinds of things happened to him. 
And God was the one who arranged it all to happen. In his famous statement to his brothers, Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20, after he's revealed himself to them and uh, they've apologized and everything, and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, don't miss this. In God's providence, the, people, the family of Jacob was saved from famine. But in God's providence, this wonderful thing happened through kidnapping, enslavement, false accusation, being thrown in prison, and so forth, as far as Joseph was concerned. So God may do wonderful things in your life. And, though, and, and the way that he does the wonderful things in your life may involve tremendous suffering. You might say, well, that's not very encouraging. I'd rather hear a message about how God's going to always bless his children and take care of us and deliver us from every trial. But you don't really want to hear that. You don't really want to hear that because you know that real life isn't like that. You know that real life has times of suffering, bereavement, sickness, depression, sadness, being lonesome. You know that that's what real life is like. And what you need to hear is that God is at work in the midst of all of it. And that the outcome, unbeknownst to Joseph, remember when Joseph is languishing in prison, it would be easy for him to be bitter and say, how could God let my miserable brothers get me into this mess? Joseph has no idea. He has no forewarning. Hey, I'm going to send you down to Egypt. You're going to have to go through some rough times, but don't worry, I'm going to save your family and keep the Abrahamic covenant through you, so cheer up. He never says that. You don't get that word to, to Joseph. He's he, he just expected to believe on faith. And man, if, if you read your Bible... There's a lot of people in the Bible in that same pickle. The bad stuff comes and they're expected to believe by faith. Tomorrow we'll talk about Job. And so in the providence of God, Joseph was preserved through kidnapping, enslavement, false accusation, prisons, and his enemies so that the people of God would be preserved, but preserved in the midst of trouble. Because then... Just when you think that everything's wonderful, it gets worse. Israel is enslaved by the new Pharaoh who arises who knew not Joseph. And notice carefully what verse 25 says. I don't know if you noticed this when I was reading it. I almost stopped and pointed it out, but I, I, I didn't. But notice verse 25. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. So far, so good. That's great. But notice what it also says. And he turned their hearts to hate his people. He turned their hearts to hate his people. He could just as easily in his sovereignty have turned their hearts to love his people. But he didn't. You know, in the Exodus narrative, in Exodus 3 to 15... 
you, um, you have a series of statements about God and Pharaoh's heart. And there are some statements at the beginning where Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then toward the end, it starts to say, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the, the, the narrative is saying that all that happened in the context of the Exodus happened for a reason by God's will. God intended that the, that the children of Israel would be delivered from Egypt, that the nation of Egypt would be humbled, and that the gods of Egypt would be humbled before the power of Yahweh. God intended that this be recorded in sacred scripture to be read 3,000 years later by people at a retreat in Colorado to remember that God has made a display of the, of the might of Egypt to show his power and his sovereignty and his greatness. We never know exactly what God is doing in our trials and tribulations. We have often no idea what God is going to eventually lead us to or, or, or cause to result from our suffering. Not only that, but we also have no idea of what God is doing in the hearts of those who are watching us. We have no idea. And maybe more souls are won through Christian suffering than through Christians triumphing. Maybe more people are converted because Christians, they see Christians having faith going through the tough times rather than Christians talking about how blessed they are and how wonderful their life is and how everything is so good. I'm not diminishing blessings. I'm, I'm all for blessings. I, 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 you know, if, if, you, if the Lord wants to pour out, you know, abundant wealth on me, I will not complain. If he wants me to, you know, have good health and all the one, I have so many blessings and I like, I like having blessings, but I'm just saying that God blessing his people materially and relationally and emotionally and physically and all the different ways is not the only way by which God affects his work in the world. He also effects that work in the world through his people being suffering and being persecuted. That's what the psalmist is trying to get across. The psalmist is saying, look, you guys, you're really depressed right now. The exile has just happened. You don't see any way out. Everything looks dark. But guys, remember, this isn't the first time. This isn't the first time Israel's been in a tight spot. Like, remember history. Remember our forefathers. Remember that people have been going through suffering for a long time and that God has accomplished great things as a result of the suffering of his people in the past. And that is the, that's the message of the psalm. He's trying to get this across to people. In a way, he's talking to people who know things intellectually, but they can't quite emotionally connect with what they know. Have you ever been there? That you know that something is true, but you can't quite operationalize that in your life because, because you don't, you, you just, everything in you emotionally wells up in opposition to the truth that you know that's right in front of your eyes. And so what the psalmist is doing is he's giving therapy. He's, he's counseling. You want to talk about biblical counseling, here's the psalmist counseling the people of Israel 
By what? By recalling history. Who knew that history could be useful in counseling? But there you have it. He goes on, the protection of the wilderness, verses 39 to 42. He gave them water from a rock. He gave them manna and quail for food. He protected them from uh, nations that could uh, harm them. What they had come to claim as their right, the psalmist is saying, was actually theirs only by divine grace. What they had come to claim as their right was only theirs by divine grace. In the burial service that stems from the, it's in many handbooks, many pastoral handbooks, stems from the Book of Common Prayer, talks about the, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And it comes from Job. Remember that a God, a lot of people try to get God off the hook. A lot of people try to say, well, you know, God would like to help, but he's made you with a free will, and, you know, you chose bad things, so God can't really prevent these things from happening, and those people have a bad, they have a free will, and they're choosing evil, and what can God do? They try to excuse God. They try to get God off the hook. They try to make it so God isn't going to get the blame. But remember this, a God who is not providentially in control of history and nature is not powerful enough to save us. A God who is not providentially in control of history and nature is not powerful enough to save us. And you might, you might not appreciate that when you feel like you don't need much saving, like when you're in in a good place and everything's wonderful. But when, you, when it gets dark and, and when you get in the corner and when you don't see any way forward, you need a God who's bigger than you and your free will. You need a God who can do anything. A God who is in charge of history and who won't let you be backed into a corner that, you, that he can't get you out of. Because he's not that kind of God. He's not just one of the actors in the play. He is the, the one who has written the whole play. He is the one in control of history. The psalmist is trying to get us to see that God wasn't just active in the good parts of Israel's history, but also in the bad ones. And they enter into the land, and it's all grace. They, 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 they eat from vineyards that they did not plant, and they eat crops that they did not, that they did not sow, and they, they get a land that they didn't work for. And the final verse of the psalm is so poignant because it says that God gave them all these things by grace in order that, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. But who keeps his statutes and observes his laws? Look, if you can't identify with Israel at this point, you're, you must be some kind of self-righteous Pharisee, honestly. We all break God's law. We all fail. We all do things that are wrong. And what the psalmist is trying to say is, you don't have to assume that when you do enough wrong things, you're going to be cut off forever by God. No, 
Everything you ever had was grace. You didn't deserve any of it in the first place. You didn't get it in the first place because you earned it. It was given to you by grace. And God is going to give you the grace you need to get through everything. Wonder of wonders, they are not cast off forever. Notice the final words. Praise the Lord. He goes back to the beginning of the psalm and, and utters the same words again. It begins with a call to praise the Lord and it ends with a call to praise the Lord. The message of the psalm is that even in the midst of exile, God is still sovereign. He's still in control of history. He's still working out his plan to bring blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham. So what do we learn from this psalm? Well, we learn... Uh, we learn, first of all, that God's providence is seen in the history of salvation. The ups and the downs. The good and the bad. That God causes Pharaoh to persecute Israel. And he causes them to enslave Israel. And then he delivers Israel from them. God is at work in both of the circumstances, the bad ones and the good ones. He's in control of the whole thing. And secondly, we learned that nothing can ultimately thwart his purposes, not even our sin. This is what Israel was learning. Yeah, Israel was disobedient to the covenant. Israel broke the covenant. Israel ended up cast out of the land, just as Deuteronomy predicted. You will worship false gods, and God will raise up enemies, and you'll be cast. The land will vomit you out, in that graphic phrase that's used in, in, in Deuteronomy. And so even that is not going to stop God from keeping his covenant to Abraham. That's what we need to understand, is that even when you and I sin, we can't stop his providence. That's not a reason why we should take sin lightly. But we have to understand that not your sin, not my sin, not the government's sin, not our, our enemy's sin, not somebody else's sin, nobody's sin ultimately thwarts the, the providence of God. Not even all the sins put together. Even when Israel is just as bad as the pagan nations, God still gets his his covenant kept, he still gets his work done, he still brings blessing to the nations. And then thirdly, not all his ways are comfortable or even comprehensible. We don't know why Joseph had to go through all those things. I mean, couldn't God have arranged for a nicer trip. You, you all have arranged for a nice trip for us to come to Colorado. We've enjoyed it. We, uh, we got to fly in an airplane. It actually took off on time, wonder of wonders. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been, it's been great to be here. But Joseph's journey wasn't like that. He sold into, kidnapped, thrown into wealth, sold to slavers, you know, cast into prison, left to rot. Like, couldn't have God, couldn't God have made it easier? Why didn't God make it easier? The point is we don't know. And we can't know. It's beyond our comprehension. Why does a young parent die with leaving three small children behind? Why? We don't know. Why does God allow a nation to be conquered? We don't know. Why does God allow Jerusalem to be destroyed when there were in it faithful Israelites probably reading the book of Isaiah, expecting this to come? And they get put to the sword. 
by the Babylonians. Why do these things happen? Why were the early Christians persecuted? Why? The ways of God can be trusted, but they can't be always understood. The history of Israel shows that God has allowed Israel to go through a lot of suffering, and God has given them rich blessings, and we should be willing to accept both from the hand of God. Because providence is not your get-out-of-jail-free card. Providence is not your nothing guarantee that nothing bad will happen to you. Providence is simply the conviction that God is in control and that in the end it will all be worth it because we will understand where it was going. And the, the end point of our lives is not physical death, but beyond death, and that's tomorrow's sermon. But we will see that the point that the psalmist is trying to make is that God is so in control of the, of the world that nothing that happens that's evil can shake our faith in the fact that the Lord is good. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown yourself faithful throughout the history of Israel. You've kept your promise to Abraham. And we look around the world and we see upwards of two billion of the the seed of Abraham now. You have kept this promise in a marvelous way that no one could have predicted. And you 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 have shown yourself to be the sovereign good Lord. So, Father, we pray that you would just just help us to focus our minds on you. Help us to go into this discussion of the problem of evil tomorrow with your goodness and your sovereignty in mind. And help us to, to trust you, not only when the times are good, but also when the times are bad. Help us to trust you always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.